you almost wouldn't know how steep learning curve was by looking at most of the prints where, you know, I know it because I've sort of been involved, but I don't think the average person sees it, which is a testament to the, the, the artist's ability and the, the printmaker's ability too. Print friends, and welcome to the 60th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram and Facebook. And you can sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world, all at pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon page, where, if you like PCL and you want to throw us a couple dollars each month, you get super cool thanks, like stickers, buttons, and totes. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. This episode of Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by our sponsor, Speedball Art Products, who've been bringing you a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. Their newest and exciting initiative is Speedball's Print Posse. Working with contemporary printmaking icons, Speedball has invited each artist to design and name an ink of their choosing. Artists like Pine Copper Lime alumnus, Martin Mazora, who appeared in episode 38, where we chatted about letterpress, woodcuts, and turkeys. Martin's relief ink, Cannonball Black, is a deep, inky dream. For more on Speedball's print posse, or to find out where you can pick up a can of your new favorite ink, check out speedballart.com. My guest this week is Andrew Fingerhut. Andrew is the co-founder of Raking Light Projects, an initiative which pairs tattoo artists with master printers from around the world to create editions of an artistic practice usually found more on skin than on paper. Their aim is to bridge the creative values of tattooing, traditional printmaking, and fine art. In this episode, we talk about building a business which connects strangers, the historical links between Japanese woodblock and tattoo traditions, and why is it that printmakers love tattoos so very much? This is also Print Friends, the first episode of Pine Copper Lime coming to you from my new headquarters in Bangkok, Thailand. That's why this episode came out a little bit late this week. I was moving continents and um, going into quarantine and dealing with a lot of paperwork. But I can't wait to start sharing more stories with you about the incredible print scene here in Southeast Asia. Cheers, Sydney. Sawatika, Bangkok. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to feel that electric buzz with Andrew Fingerhut. Hi, Andrew. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. Thank you for joining me. I know we had a bit of back and forth organizing the time, but I'm really excited that it worked out and you can tell us a little bit about what it is that you do, because I think you've got quite an unusual project I'm excited to share with people. Great. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah. So 
For people who maybe not, aren't necessarily familiar with you, would you mind giving yourself a little introduction, which is the who you are, where you are, and what you do questions? Okay, sure. My name is Andrew Fingerhut. I am the co-founder of Raking Light Projects, which has been publishing work for eight or nine years. I'm currently living in Colorado, but we're not based in Colorado necessarily. And we publish work by uh, a number of tattooers from across the world. So with Raking Light, could you speak a little bit just kind of to the general process of it in terms of, you know, what does it look like from kind of finding an artist to connecting them with a printer to the end product? The way it works basically is myself and my partner, Eddie Deutsch, who's a tattooer and who's been involved with Raking Light, co-founded it with me. We basically, um, he's got the final creative say. So if there's an artist that I like, I share work with Eddie. Eddie gives his opinion, his kind of up or down, what his take is on it, and vice versa. So he's coming from the tattoo world. It's a little, his, his approach is a bit different, but he's very open to all sorts of styles of art, all sorts of styles of tattoos. So we review the work, and then if we think that it's going to be somebody whose work is interesting and will work favorably with, you know, different printmaking uh, mediums, then we reach out to the person, hopefully they're interested, and then it's just about kind of matching their art with a specific type of print, which I think gets the artist interested, the ones who are willing to do it. So it's, uh, that's a little bit about the process from uh, kind of top down. Definitely. And so how did the idea of Raking Light come about? Uh, you know, it sort of happened in a very slow, general way. Probably 10 years ago, I met Eddie, and he was tattooing me, and we had started a half sleeve that became a full sleeve that became a second sleeve, and hmm. he ended up doing my back as well. So we had a lot of time to kind of talk and a lot of time to kill, quite frankly, as I was being tattooed by him. So I had an interest in tattoos before meeting him, but not really much knowledge of who the people are, sort of the surface level I could see and I had styles I liked, but I didn't know much about the tattoo world. So mm. I think Eddie and I basically, we both had had our first kids around the same time. Um, we were living in the same city at that time. So there was just, we had a lot in common at that time that we, you know, became friends. We started talking about the idea of, sort of publishing work after I had sort of seen and gotten exposed to how much more there was to it than I, I guess I originally thought in terms of different styles, different techniques, different people's approaches. Um, you know, the more that I learned from Eddie and saw, the more that I thought it'd be very interesting for people to kind of experience, um, you know, tattoos are a good leeway into something, but I think that there's so much more to it from a creative mm. perspective that that's kind of where how it started. Well, one of the things that I thought was so captivating about the project for me was that I, like I think a lot of people, spend a fair amount of time on Instagram looking around and just seeing these spectacular tattoo artists all over the world who are just doing beautiful mm -hmm. work. But you see them and they're, you know, maybe they're in Seoul and you're just like, well, I'm really 
don't have any plans to be in Seoul anytime soon. So how, you know, you, you feel the disconnect maybe between the connection that you feel with the art that they're making and that kind of desire to have it in your life. But with tattoos, of course, there's there's such a, a corporeal experience to that. You need to be there in person to get to experience it or get to sort of have it. But with raking light, it actually breaks that boundary a little bit. So you have the chance to own and have in your life art from someone that you admire through printmaking and you know you don't have to travel to to Poland or South Korea to actually get it on your body as much as you know you might like to so I do love that aspect Mm -hmm. of it yeah I think it's funny because Instagram is actually one of those it's kind of a love and hate thing that a lot of people have with it in my perspective it's fantastic just because I've been exposed to so many artists that I would not have gotten to see if not through Instagram so you know, we discovered a number of artists that whose work really looked good. They're fr- it doesn't really matter where they're from, in a sense. We've worked with people from all over the world just because I think if people are interested in doing the work, then it's just, you know, my part to facilitate certain things is pretty easy to do. But it's just amazing how much is out there. I think it's almost overwhelming, in a sense, both from like somebody who's looking for a tattoo, but also from an art perspective. It's overwhelming, but it's also overwhelming kind of in a good way in the sense that there really is so much talent out there that, you know, if not for looking at a little screen, probably wouldn't have happened upon it where you live or unless you're traveling all over the world. It's just uh, it's a good gateway into that. Yeah, I actually, you know, I'm I'm 35 and I didn't start getting tattooed until just a couple of years ago. And so I never got tattoos before the age of Instagram. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's almost seems strange to even try and undertake it. Just in this way of, I would never now just wander into my local tattoo parlor and pick something randomly, you know, not, and I know that people do that, of course, and no shade, but just in terms of the way I interact with visual culture, I choose the artists that I work with so consciously and I'm so particular about it and pretty much all of that is because of Instagram basically yeah mm-hmm. is it's, it's it's really a, a golden age for people who are wanting to get tattooed in what they're exposed to and you know you can find out for instance I there I mentioned Seoul because I tend to like a lot of South Korean tattoo artists and it's the kind of thing where someone who you've admired for years, you might discover that they're doing a guest spot in Sydney. And all of a sudden, you're going to be mm-hmm. in the same city. And you can have this connection with someone that you might not otherwise. And it's just it's just such a neat, a neat time to be interested in tattooing. And I would imagine for the tattoo community as well. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I, I can tell you sort of pre, uh, you know, pandemic era, there there was sort of an equal ground where you, you know, you could see something and follow someone's travel plans and and you could have your paths kind of intersect with enough sort of work. And yeah, I found it, I've been tattooed a number of times by people who have, whose work I've discovered on Instagram. And it's always been an interesting process to sort of meet somebody in person. But I think that it's always, uh, I don't know that a lot of people necessarily take it to the level of actually going to see the artist or vice versa, but mm. it can get you interested in a certain style of tattoo that maybe you could find locally. 
I think it really depends on how particular or how specific you want to be. And I think overall a good thing for people, I'd like to think. Yeah, because for, so for instance, yeah, the tattoo artist Jaya, who told me about Raking Light, I had followed him for years on Instagram before I moved to Australia. And then it turned out, you know, that he was going to be in Sydney and, and we got to meet up. And as I mentioned before, that's how I got introduced to Raking Light and how the Pine Copper Lime editor and resident printmaker Tim Pauschak got to do some editions with you. And it's just, yeah, it's a wonderful way to to connect and to connect with people who otherwise you would never meet. Mm-hmm. That's definitely true. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that it goes back to, um, it feels sort of thrown off just because the lack of the ability to travel kind of, on one hand, Instagram still sort of provides that platform where you still can see everywhere. It may not be quite as personal if you can't travel somewhere, but it still kind of provides, if nothing else, maybe you need it more nowadays because mm. you can't do it on your own. So mm-hmm. it's uh, strange times, but it's definitely an interesting medium from a tattoo perspective, from an art perspective. Yeah. Um, you know, I when we started Raking Light, I wasn't really sure. Selling online seemed like the thing to do just because I couldn't afford to open a gallery. And I also didn't know how to even locate one in the mm. sense that to do it the traditional way, I don't think I could have found the right spot, had the money to make it work correctly and reach the number of people. And it seems like more and more that most, or I don't know about most, but there's a fair amount of art sold online. And mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything that can replace seeing something in person, but people seem to take the risk and take that jump. So it's nice that people have that faith in what you're putting up is going to be what they receive. And, and quite frankly, if you like it on Instagram, you're really going to love it in person yeah. because it's going to be you know, life-size and, and the color is going to be right. But yeah, it seems like it's a nice way for people to sort of participate in art collecting. I'm glad people do it. Yeah, and I think for a certain perspective as well on it, there are people who are already following and loyal to the tattoo artists. And so in a way you get to kind of know that they trust them as artists and that they don't necessarily, you know, it's it's great that raking light comes through and of course delivers like safely and delivers that product, but there also has to be a certain amount of built-in faith by someone who says, ah, I love Oni O'Leary's art. I'm guessing she's not going to sign her name on something that's not good, you know? And so I think that's really nice as well, is that you get to kind of build your own reputation alongside the tattoo artists who obviously Mm -hmm. have put a lot of time and effort into building theirs because that's so, so important in their business as well. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And it's also, I think, amongst tattooers, there's definitely, word travels fast. And so I think if you were, you know, providing a service to one tattooer and it didn't work out, that would, you know, have a negative impact and spread really quickly. So Mm -hmm. it's good. It's sort of self-regulating in a sense. And I think that's always, if you're trying to do the right thing by people and you want that kind of system because the positive stuff travels as well. So I'd like to think that at this point we have a good reputation amongst tattooers that maybe they don't all know what racing light is and I can understand that. But, you know, the ones that do, I think, are pretty interested in participating and it's great. It's nice that people see and appreciate the work, both from, you know, a collecting perspective, but also just sort of getting a sense of what is involved with the process mm. in terms of printmaking specifically. 
I find that people are very interested in, you know, we post like a process video or, you know, letterpress machine kind of running. And I think there are definitely people who are really into that who have never seen it before. And it's a nice way to sort of open their eyes to something different. Yeah. One of my questions for you was, what level of understanding for printmaking do people tend to have when you start to propose these projects with them? Uh, it really varies. I'd say that, you know, it depends. I think there's a knowledge of, I'd say a lot of the artists did some sort of DIY, like t-shirt making mm. or screen printing. But as far as, you know, well, also I think like Don Ed Hardy's role in, in producing so many good etchings and lithographs over the years has really opened a lot of tattooers' eyes to that sort of artwork just by seeing his work. And so I think that there's a discovery of different techniques and mediums through that, that if people haven't done it themselves, because etching is not the easiest sort of thing to just yeah. pick up and do, but there's definitely an, an interest in it if you can kind of find the right person. You know, someone who's seen an etching that's done well, it's, it's pretty amazing. And so I think that there's an eagerness to participate in some of those things, but it doesn't really, you don't have to have knowledge of printmaking as far as I'm concerned, to work with us. I'd like to think that we can find the right medium for people. You know, I just want to make their work look good. I don't want to force them through, you know, a tunnel that doesn't make sense in terms of the final outcome. So if they're willing to put the time in, we can definitely find the right medium. And I think that it's been, uh, I've been really surprised and definitely appreciate the amount of faith people give and the amount of work mm -hmm. they put into it because it's just, there's much more work involved in doing something traditional than making a painting and then selling it digitally. Yeah. So you know, it comes through in the end, but I don't know that everybody who's a consumer can kind of appreciate the time that goes in. So the artists do, and I think that they are willing to do the work and it really that, you know, the right combination of people with an interest and a willingness to work at something, those create the best results. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So in terms of kind of how you get people to work with, how do you select the tattoo artists? Sort of what, what do you what do you two look for? Do you specifically just look for work that you respond to? Or are you looking at the work in a way as well in the sense of like, oh, this would make a good print. Like you could almost see the aesthetic translating to etching or screen print. How, yeah, what's, what's that process like? I mean, I think the process is basically, um, it's either the artist does fantastic work that Eddie and I both really like, and we want to work with that person, or it's somebody whose work, yeah, who seems to be particularly suited, whether they know it or not, to a kind of print medium that should really work well. Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of varies. I think it's mostly based on just interest in the work. It's just seeing something that, that looks interesting and saying, well, it'd be fun to make prints with that person. And then you kind of figure out how to do it and hopefully they're into it. I think it's worked more often than not, thankfully, but mm. you know, there's always a, there's always that risk with making prints that it's not necessarily going to work. So yeah. we, um, we don't put out anything that the artist doesn't approve. If they don't sign it and they're not into it, I'm not going to release it at the end of the day. And we've kind of, we've had a couple of editions that haven't made it out from for one reason or another, but you know, I want to put out work that really, is going to show their is showing showcase them properly and also just you know 
reflect value in what we're doing. Um, I still, I really want to create a collector base for artwork. I think that it's, uh, it's important to do that. And so I think making prints in a traditional fashion, which not, which isn't something we always do, but it's something that part of what we do, um, Mm-hmm. It's important to do it step by step and sort of approach it in the proper uh, perspective. Do you have a background in traditional printmaking or does Eddie or how did that kind of come to be? Like, how did you did know what etching was and that it's an option for creating original multiples? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I don't have a background in printmaking. Eddie doesn't have a background in printmaking and I, you know, I'd like to think that what, what happened was when we started out, we, the first couple of artists that we worked with, we actually did some, some digital work with them. And one of the artists, Bert Crack, who we ended up working with his whole shop, he mentioned Paul Maloney, who was oh, yeah. um, at that time in oh, San Francisco um, doing etchings. And somehow we put those pieces together that we were going to make one print with the guys. And then it turned out to actually... 18 individual etchings by the four members of Smith Street. It was a, it was an incredible project for them to actually, Mm -hmm. they spent the time we, they were all in studio for the entire printmaking process for all of the work. So talking three or four weeks of work and travel. So it was, that was sort of the exposure from an etching perspective in terms of like the high art, fine art printmaking process. And then, it opened doors to, you know, screen printing or letterpress or litho. But that was sort of the, the start of it. It wasn't um, part of the original design, to be honest with you, but I'm glad that we did it because it, it's resonated with people and the work is, it just seems like it's the right fit for people. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that when I was talking to Tim in the lead up to our interview, you know, one of the things he said is that, the print world needs more projects like Raking Light and more people like you and Eddie because the more kind of insular, snake-eating-its-own-tail the print world is, it's never going to reach broader audiences. It's never going to, you know, kind of break out of the loops that we've created. So to have someone and to have a project like Raking Light that someone might get a screen print or an etching or a lithograph for the first time in their collection because their interest has been tattooing or something like that. It's really, really great to have because it just expands the profile of print to audiences that might never be exposed to it. So it's always wonderful to see people interfacing with the media in new ways. Yeah, I, I'd like to think that's true. It's a, it would be, um, yeah, I'd like to help promote traditional printmaking. And, and we definitely have good relationships with a number of printers. And I can appreciate what they do and how much they put into it. Um, it's a tough road to travel. I mean, I see mm. from a financial perspective, from a work perspective, and I happen to really like the output. And if I can help sort of you know, support that in some way, then that part's easy. And if the artist is obviously willing to put in the work, even more of a, of a positive thing where it's, you know, they have to have an appreciation for it. And I think a lot of tattooers, as you were saying before, definitely have a natural connection to printmaking, something about the, the labor of it and the process of it, where 
they usually don't have a background in it, but they fall in quickly and mm-hmm. they really, they're quick learners. They put the time in. It's remarkable how you almost get spoiled in a sense mm-hmm. how, you know, how much work has to be done, but they're willing to do it. And so it's, uh, I think the printers can sort of see and respect that as well. So it, it works out both ways. But also I think part of it is that the prints end up being attractive because of the medium. So people may not know what the medium is. And I don't know that it always matters in the sense that if they like an etching, they might not know what the qualities are, but they like the aesthetics. They like mm-hmm. the, the final product. And I think that's important too. Absolutely. And the fact that print media, I think it kind of gets sometimes categorized as just something to create multiples. And what people kind of miss in that is that each medium has a look or a feel or an aesthetic or a finish that really can only be achieved through that medium. Like you can't make something that looks like an etching that's not an etching. Mm -hmm. And that that, that etchings have beautiful qualities to them that are good in and of itself that also have another quality of being able to be a multiple, which is good in its own way. Yeah. Something that I've I've found, which is sort of interesting in the way that kind of the general world thinks about tattooing, you know, may, people who maybe haven't put a lot of necessary thought into it, is the fact that tattoo artists are incredible artists tends to kind of mm-hmm. get lost in this weird way, where it's almost because it's on skin, because it's not on canvas or paper people tend to forget what they're essentially doing is drawing, is designing, is using color in this super thoughtful way with this whole other element of having a living matrix. And I think people just kind of lose that somehow. Like they think maybe they're just tracing stencils or something. And so Mm -hmm. I'm not surprised to learn that they really can take to printmaking like a fish to water because these are people who are just craftspeople in their blood, are draftspeople in their blood, I think, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think that the vast majority of tattooers, certainly that we work with, are their artists first. They mm-hmm. were drawing and painting before they discovered tattoos, and tattoos sort of fit in part of their creative output, but it's not necessarily all of what they do or what they want to do. So I think it's, yeah, printmaking and creating art outside of tattooing gives them sort of the freedom to be probably a bit more selfish in terms of what mm. the subject matter is. It's, it's easier. It's a different kind of medium. Maybe not easier, but it's, you can think, uh, you're putting a tattoo on somebody, you need their input and you need yeah. them to be happy at the end of the day with what you get. And, you know, if you're painting on canvas, it doesn't, it's not going to talk back and tell you what to do or, or you know, it's not going to sort of give you a feeling that, you know, this is not what they want. So I think that there's a freedom that they get outside of, you know, their normal nine to five business day. And I think it also opens up like they're, you know, they may be known for tattooing a certain style, but that is probably not what they want to do 100% of the time. So to let them go kind of be creative in terms of what the subject matter is and the medium, it seems like a nice fit. I think that it's appreciated by people. And then, you know, it's nice to have a group of uh, an audience of people interested in that person's tattoos or their artwork that, you know, could be there to 
support the prince or to collect the prince. I think that's it's an important part of it too. Yeah, and and that maybe gives tattoo artists a certain experience of, as you say, they're artists first as a more traditional art maker experience, which is that I've created an object separately, separate from a body that mm-hmm. people want to buy and want to own and want to put on their wall, and which is di- quite, quite different than the experience of being a tattoo artist, I would guess. So something I was thinking about in the lead up to our chat, which you may already completely be aware of, but I couldn't get out of my head the fact that, you know, Edo period Japanese tattoo artists were often woodblock carvers as well. Mm-hmm. And so that this connection between printmaking and tattoo goes back hundreds of years. And, you know, this this idea that my understanding is that of the people who who did these tattoos, who did what they were calling at the time haramono, which is just a carved object, they were the people who physically carved the block. Because, you know, in a Japanese wood wood block shop in the Edo period, there's the, you know, many different roles of people going through, um, you know, just like in the early days of printmaking in Europe as well. You know, there's there's the artist and then there's the person who, you know, does the carving and the person who does the stenciling and that kind of thing. And so the people who were doing the tattoos were the, the carvers. And so they would have to just follow the lines that were written out already on the block. And that when it came to tattooing, they actually got to be a lot more creative because they were the ones sort of laying down the image. But it's just, it's sort of interesting that in that connection, it's almost going the other direction. So if you were taking tattoo artists and turning them into printmakers in that early Yukioi wood carvers, they were carvers who turned into tattoo artists. But I think that there's something since it's in sort of the, the historical roots of very early tattooing and very early printmaking that they both are have that kind of hand in hand, I just think is really, really neat. And again, shows a, a long time connection between the two art forms. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think there's also that that natural respect that, um, you know, a massive printer and a tattooer are going to have once they establish and see each other's work that is a is usually a great sign for um what's going to come just you know compared to like a digital print where it's it's easy to find ways to make digital prints and and there's definitely different qualities to it and there's i think a lot you can do creatively digitally that appeals to people and suits certain work really well but the kind of overall done by hand process you know, it's what you get in a tattoo. It's why when you look at it, it's not 100% perfect. It's not mm. computerized. It's not, you know, it's it's done by a person on another person. And I think printmaking has that same kind of mystique to it in a lot of ways where, you know, you see the impression in the paper, you see the ink, you, see, you kind of, you get that it's made by hand very quickly. You may not see it in the picture of it, but when you actually receive the the print itself, I think a lot of people can appreciate that too, where it's not just another digital, you know, replica. It's, mm. it is the piece. It's, it's what it's meant to be. Cause we really, you know, with the mediums that we kind of put with people's work there, there, it's not like they're taking 
a painting of theirs and putting it in as a print. A lot of times that's, you know, that's not how it goes and they're creating something specifically to be made as a multiple as an addition. So I think it's, it's nice for people to see that in a new way, not just, Oh, I like this painting of this guy. I'm going to buy a copy of it. So I'd like to think that, that, that there's people that kind of can support both. And I think that the printers definitely bring a lot to it. Well, and that's something that, you know, when, you know, cause a lot of my background when it comes to printmaking is time spent in a commercial gallery that was focused in contemporary printmaking. And so kind of being this person who is a bit of the communicator about what printmaking is to someone who may not know has been a big part of my professional life and getting people to understand that there may be some variation print to print Mm -hmm. is not a negative. And I think that we, we sort of get trained in this way to think about a sort of hierarchy in which exactitude is the end all be all, as opposed to seeing the fact that each edition, each physical print in that edition is a piece that was created in its unique time and place. And, you know, Mm -hmm. what was going on with the screen or the inking or the artist in that moment is reflected in that object. And I think sort of similarly with tattooing, I find it an interesting process and kind of letting go a little bit of outcome as well, because you can plan and plan and plan. But if you go into getting a tattoo thinking, I am only going to be happy with this if it looks exactly the way I imagined in my head, you're setting yourself up for heartbreak (laughs) because then you will have this thing forever, which you're unsatisfied with. So there's a similar, I think, kind of releasing the artistic process to fate and realizing Mm -hmm. that you can only plan up into a certain point and at which point you need to just be happy with the outcome is and understand that not everything is within your control. Yeah. And I think actually tattooers embrace that. And, and in my experience, they, I have not had anybody say it has to be exactly this way. They're Mm -hmm. open to, you know, if the ink color changes a bit or the shading is this, it's, they want their work to live up to their certain standards, but they don't sweat all the details. And Mm -hmm. they're interested in seeing what happens when they let go of it and how it's going to come back. So that's always, I think, part of the interesting process of printmaking where it's really, in my experience, from what I've seen, it's not nearly as dialed in as people might think it is in Mm -hmm. terms of there's always that that risk or that mystery of uh, what's going to come out at the other end, which can be kind of nerve-wracking, but on the other hand, it's hopefully where that magic comes through, where all the elements fit together and it's even better than you would have thought it would be. So it's, it's a nice way for if the artist is, is looking, you know, is open to that, then it works well. You know? And if they're not, then that's probably not a good medium for them. Yeah. And that in both situations, it's so much of that chance can also be sometimes your favorite part of the end piece when you let yourself be open to it as well, is what you didn't quite mm-hmm. expect, which again, yeah, is, it's just, I think a good, a good skill to have in life in general is just to be <laughs> a little bit more open to not having to control every element of an outcome. It's a good practice. 
Yeah, no, that's true. And it's, uh, yeah, look, it's hard. It's hard with print publishing. It's hard in real life. It's, I, I don't know. I personally have a natural tendency to try to control things. And mm. the prints, uh, I, I love when something, you know, an edition shows up and I'm seeing it for the first time in person because that's really the true test, right? Where you can actually see it on paper. And it's always a little, you know, I'm always a little anxious before mm. I open something because I really don't know how it's going to look in person. And I'm hopeful, but, and I think that we've found a great group of printers that if I have confidence in anybody, it's them, but mm -hmm. it's still at the end of the day, you don't quite know what you're going to get until you see it in person. And maybe an extension of that is people buying art online where yeah. they don't quite know what they're going to get until they see it. But it's a lot easier to receive a tube of something and be confident that you're going to like it. Or at least I have confidence that once sort of the artist sees it and signs it and I feel comfortable with it that the general public is going to like what they see if that's the work that they like. Yeah. You know, they're not going to feel like they got they got duped into something. Well, and and how I feel about buying prints online because I I do it quite a bit. You know, particularly, you know, not not working in a commercial gallery anymore where I could, I'm seeing tons of work in person and and buying from that, but instead seeing something online that I respond to and then I purchase it and when it shows up is you know, so far like touch wood, I've been absolutely delighted with everything. And it's, you know, a lot of it is because I am purchasing, as you said, from artists, from printers that I have an inert faith in. And I, I respect them and respect the quality of the work that they make. But I feel like getting that little extra charge of getting to see something in person for the first time, it's a kind of a really fun element of modern art purchasing is you can see an image and sort of fall in love with it on a screen. And then when you do get to open it up, that sort of present like quality uh, is just really delightful. And when you see it in person and you get to say, oh, it's, you know, it's everything I, everything I hoped it would be. It's better than I thought. I don't know. I, it's, it's like, I would imagine uh showing up to a, a date or something after messaging someone and they're, they're just as delightful in person as they seemed online. <laughs> I really, really like that experience of it. Although, as you said, nothing, nothing will ever replace the experience of seeing things in person and going to a gallery and having that in real life experience. But I, I do like the little surprise present like quality of buying online. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And I, I also still, I guess it might be a function of being a little older but I still think of buying art as seeing it in person first. Mm. And I do feel like in a lot of ways, it's sort of, I, I try to keep that in mind when I'm presenting something, just because I can't take for granted that somebody's looking at their, their phone is going to get the whole thing. So I, I want people to be comfortable with what they're going to receive at the end of the day. But it's, it's, a, it's impossible to kind of, you can't make it look exactly how it is in real life in person online it just doesn't you know yeah. there's always some failure or some difference so I try to make people as comfortable as they need to be I think most people just go with it and they're willing and they're totally open to seeing a person they're usually really happy about it so it's nice that people have that faith in what they're buying I don't want to take it for granted because mm. I don't think that that's it's just it's important I think people are spending especially with you know lithographs or, or etchings they're not inexpensive yeah. and 
I want people to feel like they're getting something that's a quality product that they're really happy about that's going to be on the wall of their house. So that's important to me that they're, when they receive it, happy about what they get. But I guess that's always part of art, buying. And I think, too, that, you know, your relationship to works of art that you have in your home, I think, does change over time as well. And so, you know, things that you really loved about one piece when you bought it, that might shift to something else. And I think also seeing the relationship with the art in your life as evolving and ongoing is all part of the perspective Mm -hmm. as well. And maybe even something that you weren't thrilled about when you first got a piece might translate into something that turns out to be your favorite. And that, you know, the way that we revisit something like, let's say, music, that's sort of taken for granted, that if you have a favorite album, you're going to know it backwards and forwards, and your favorite song and it might change over time. And what was originally your favorite might turn out to be your least favorite by the end. And I think that people need to understand that art, visual art, like music, can can fill that same role, that it's not something that you just kind of hang up and say, oh, I got it. It's done now. It's actually something that you Mm -hmm. revisit and that you develop your relationship to and you notice different things about it. And it's not just something that fills the empty hole on the wall. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I think, but I think that's also, the foundation of that is still that they like what they're seeing initially. And hopefully that grows and appreciates in time with repeated exposure, different lighting, different angles. And I know that I find myself looking at things around my house fairly frequently after years and years of having them up and seeing something new or appreciating something in a different kind of way. It is nice to sort of deepen that relationship you have with art. I think that the prints are sort of, I'm hoping that that's the quality of work that we're putting out for people, that they can have that relationship with something. And so then in terms of the actual production of the work that Raking Light does, is most all of it kind of done long distance? So the the artist, tattoo artist that you're working with and the printers, this is all coordination that you're doing through email and Instagram and, and all of that? Most of it is. It's not all done that way. There are certain printers who Paul Milani has done a, a number of monotypes with artists that have gone in for a couple of days to his studio to work on different pieces. And um, we've done that with letterpress prints, with some lithographs. Mostly though, it is sort of that virtual work where, you know, the, the printer's someplace, the artist is somewhere else mm-hmm. um, in the middle, hopefully not screwing anything up <laughs> and, and helping everybody understand each other. But it's, it is nice to have people in the same room. I think it adds sort of that special that special quality to it, but it also puts that pressure on that maybe you don't have if you have time to create something that's going to become a print, that you can work on it on your own time. I don't create art, but I can only imagine how stressful it is to go into a studio and have a bunch of printers that are there and and there's money involved and there's time involved and you have to create on demand almost. So I would think that would be really kind of nerve-wracking. I think tattooers are uniquely suited for that sort of challenge, but Mm. it's still got to be a difficult thing to do, especially if you don't know the medium, you've not worked with it before. So I give the people that that do that a a ton of credit and you almost wouldn't know how steep learning curve was by looking at most of the prints where, you know, I know it because I've sort of been involved, but I don't think the average person sees it, which 
is a testament to the the, the artist's ability and the, the printmaker's ability too. Well, I think something that we talked about a little bit before we started recording that you had pointed out, which I hadn't thought of before, but I think is really an interesting observation of the whole process, is the fact that tattoo artists are used to kind of performing while they create their art. Because by the very nature of tattooing, it's something that's done with another person present. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of one-on-one time in the studio with a collaborative printmaker might actually be more familiar to them than almost any other artist who's coming to create an edition of original prints for the first time, which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's true. I think a lot of the tattooers, you know, they have, there's a lot of elements they have to perform on demand where they have to draw on demand. They have to find the part of the body. And if it doesn't fit, how are they going to change mm-hmm. it to work that day? They don't have the luxury of having a person come back or when they feel like changing it, it's, there's a lot of pressure to perform from what I can tell. A lot of them make it look very easy. But mm. it's it's a lot that I think you have to do on the spot, on the fly. It's not nearly as dialed in as people, I think, expect it to be. Um, I know when I first started getting tattoos, there was a learning part that I had to let go of, you know, the managing sort of the visuals that I wanted with what actually works on the body, but mm. also that that freedom of letting go and letting somebody trust tattoo on you ultimately, I think, is going to give you a better result not to give that, you know, they can have total freedom if they want it, mm-hmm. but I think that there's that that mix where they still want to know kind of what you're looking for, at least a little bit, because they need that guidance, just like, you know, you kind of want that too. At the end of the day, you may say, oh, do whatever you want, but you probably don't mean exactly that. But maybe you do. But <laughs> I totally identify with that because the only elements of any of my tattoos that I'm not thrilled with, and I don't want to say unhappy with because... They're with you forever, and like we've talked about, like the the process of acceptance is a huge, great part of the the tattoo experience. But that I'm not, you know, that aren't my favorite parts of it is anything that the artist recommended something, and I was like, no, 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 we should do it this way, we should do it my way. And then after it was all said and done, being like, oh no, they were right, yeah, because <laughs> it's so yeah, that yeah, that learning curve of look, this isn't my medium. This isn't my profession. And if you're seeking out people who are truly talented in this, generally speaking, you know, you can come with the idea or the concept or the preferences. But when you get down to the nuts and bolts of things like placement or color or lack of color, you kind of, you really should trust them because they've been doing it a lot longer than you have. And generally, you respect them because you've seen work from them that you like. And the reason you like it is because they're good at what they do. So sort of let them do yeah. it. Yeah. It's true. There's a lot. I mean, there's, there are, there's a lot to it. A lot more to it than just the final sort of image. That's all the pieces combined come into that and, and make that. But there really is a lot involved with picking the right spot or picking even if you're picking some flash from somebody, they still have to sort of mm-hmm. figure out where it's going to go in the body, what the right size is. Yeah, the more I get tattooed, the more I kind of appreciate how much is involved and how much you don't really see until you've kind of been around it for long enough where it's really a testament to what they do, that they make it sort of look easy and that you end up with something that looks cool on your skin. And that's kind of where most of the people focus because that's really, it's, it's pretty captivating. But 
you get beyond that, there's even more to it. So I find that part interesting. And I think that, yeah, maybe what you're saying as far as printers and printmakers being tattooed, there's that maybe they see it a little bit too and they know it and they're working with the tattooer. It's going to, it's a good starting point, which I think there's that mutual respect most of the time or, you know, at least a starting respect amongst people. And I think that what I've seen is that most most of those pairings, most of the collaborations between printmaker and tattooer really do work out well and they work better in person. They can still be done virtually, but it's the ones in person tend to be always a little bit of a struggle, but mm. at the end of it, when you see the actual prints, they really work out. And I think that's probably due to both artist and printmaker, you know, working hard and, you know, trusting the other person, just like you trust the tattooer to put mm. something on you. I think that's, that's part of it. So do you have any particular directions you'd like to take the project on the horizon that you haven't gotten to do yet or anything on the future? Um, I know things generally are more up in the air than usual, but <laughs> is there anything you're particularly looking forward to with Raking Light? Maybe as COVID restrictions lift or just kind of in general <laughs> that people can look for? Well, I maybe not as, as detailed as that. I think it's really, um, we've gotten to the point where I think amongst tattooers, there's a, a among certain tattooers who, you know, create art and, and exist outside of just tattooing, there's definitely more of an openness to taking on certain projects. And I think that's always a really great place to start. People that are going to put the time into things. I'd like to continue to make prints that work for collectors on, on different budget levels where mm. I don't want to take anybody for granted and I, I understand that people don't have unlimited money so a letterpress print is a great entryway into something and people can kind of work their way up mm -hmm. to different you know things and, and buy paintings obviously and I think a lot of the artists that we work with have you know we work with them over and over again because they're still interested in a certain kind of style or a certain kind of medium as they get used to creating work for it, they learn a bit more and they, you know, can really kind of turn it on and get something that maximizes what the medium is. And it's exciting to see that. Um, I'd in the future like to have place space to show work. Um, mm -hmm. I still like the idea of things being seen in person. Mm -hmm. I don't know when that's going to happen. I have some ideas, but they're kind of in the future. It's nice to be online in the sense that there's not that financial pressure to have to you know, make rent or cover yeah. a bunch of people's costs that, you know, not having that pressure, quite frankly, especially with what's going on today has been a lifesaver in a sense of, I really feel for people who own a gallery and they have to pay the, the rent at the end of the month. It's, it's, it's hard enough probably to do that when everybody's able to travel, but when you're not, it's just, uh, I can only imagine how difficult that is. So I can, I guess, take that to appreciate being flexible and sort of, you know, having a studio that's in the back of my house and not having to pay rent and not having to pay employees. Maybe it's limiting in some ways, but it also keeps things open. And so I can take on projects that aren't just something that's going to work commercially. It can be a bit different. And quite frankly, even what I think is going to work commercially doesn't always work. So I've kind of learned to just forget that side of it, not try to not try to dial it in as much that way and just kind of trust 
the overall work. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answered the question, but I kind of feel like it's still fun doing, it's really fun doing this. So I don't know that there's a lot of change to it. I'd like to just kind of keep it moving and then just making it more established. Yeah, definitely. Well, before we totally sign off, can you let people know where they can find Raking Light and learn more about future projects, future changes, and, you know, maybe buy some prints from their favorite tattoo artists? Yeah, sure. I mean, the the website is rakinglightprojects.com. The Instagram is rakinglightprojects. And we have, you know, I think that there's through Instagram, and I hate relying on one thing too much, but it really does enable you to form good connections with people. So we've started to have advanced notice, direct messages or email where mm. people are interested in something. They can get in touch with me. I can let them know ahead of time. It's just a nice, easy way for people to stay involved in something. They may see it and have an interest. Um, I want to be as approachable and accessible as as possible and instagram makes that pretty easy so it's not so much we don't have you know like established email lists where we where we pump out stuff i really don't i don't know if that has a lot of value in terms of i think people sort of start with one or two artists that they like and then they kind of on their own expand that circle in terms of who we're working with instagram enables that to happen just by basis of what they're going to see that we put out because I I think we cover a fairly broad spectrum and I think we'll continue to get a lot more covering more people and more styles. I think there's so much more left to do as far as tattooists that there's a lot of different styles that we haven't done yet, which I'd like to do. But yeah, I think all in all, the the website has what's current and Instagram just shows sort of what leads up to that and is a good communication tool. But they can look at the site or you can email Andrew at rakinglotprojects.com. Um, however people want to get in touch, I'll, I'll help them as much as possible. Sounds good. And I, I can put links to all of that in the show notes for this. Cool. Thank you. And um, yeah, thank you for, for taking an hour out of your day to talk a bit about the project. Like I said, I, I really love it and I love anytime to great media can collaborate in really interesting ways. So thank you for what you do and, you know, for being someone who is doing something a bit beyond the expected with print and helping, helping our cause. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. And, and uh, I really appreciate your time as well. So thank you. I'll be in touch as all this is getting out. So we can talk more then. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Pia Larson. Pia is an Australian printmaker whose work explores the immigrant experience in post-World War II Australia through the use of archives and her own family's history. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.